Today, six superheroes clash with six super foes. Will the scales tip on the side of justice or death? Professor Zoom Productions, in association with the Fire and Water Podcast Network, proudly present for your listening pleasure, the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, hosted by Professor Zoom Yukonori. Today's episode, Testing the Rule. Greetings and welcome to the first episode of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, a celebration of comic book tales that are able to tell a complete story in a single issue. A proud and I hope to be worthy member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am your host, Professor Zoom Yukonori, and I am very happy to be here. In fact, I'm as euphoric as a young lad taking his first bite of a freshly baked peach pie. Now, in line with the title and what I have just stated, this program is a comic book review and critique show specifically focused on done-in-one comic book stories. Most of the episodes I have planned thus far focus mostly on my favorite DC comic stories from the Bronze Age, but will also include stories from other publishers as well as from the Silver Age in more recent years. I also have plans to introduce certain celebrity guests that I hope will distinguish this podcast from other comic book review shows out there on the interwebs, which I will go into a little bit later. Right now, why don't we start the show off and get right to the comic book being featured today, which I must admit is an exception that will prove the rule that I have just laid down. It is technically not a done-in-one story because of a problem revealed in the last two panels that our heroes would have to contend with in the following issue. But I am making this exception because this is the very first comic book I have ever read, and this issue also ignited the spark of my comic book collecting over the course of a 1974 weekend. The comic book in question is Justice League of America, Volume 1, Number 111, cover dated May to June 1974, and according to the brilliant Mike's Amazing World of Comics website, it was on sale at a Central Texas 7-Eleven spinner rack on February 7th, 1974, and has been waiting for five-plus weeks for me to pick it up. A little backstory. When I was very young, my parents and I migrated from Johannesburg, South Africa, to the United States, and we lived in Texas, a town called Katy in the Houston area, for a few years. When I was 10 years old, my parents decided to bring me along on a weekend trip in March 1974 to visit my uncle Kenzo, whom I have never met though he lived in the Dallas area. I remember it being a bit of a drive, and somewhere part way we stopped at a 7-Eleven for a bio break and to buy some snacks. We were just about to walk out when I saw a comic book spinner rack in the corner, more specifically, the Justice League of America logo peeking out from one of the bins. I remembered that name from the Super Friends program that I had been watching on Saturday mornings, so I pulled the book out of the rack and sure enough, there on the cover were the Super Friends characters I recognized from the show. Superman, Batman, Aquaman, and Flash, facing off against an equal number of villains that I had never seen before. 
Each team was launching themselves from the opposing plates of a giant, archaic balancing scale, which was held by a gigantic mystery man dressed entirely in blue. I knew right then and there that I had to buy this comic, and fortunately I had a dollar in my pocket since the 100-page comic book was 60 cents. Once back in the car, I immediately ignored the moon pie that was melting in its wrapper on the back seat next to me because I was already past the index page and completely enthralled by the opening splash page of the first story within. The main story in Justice League of America, Volume 1, Number 111, is titled Balance of Power, written by Len Wein, illustrated by Dick Dillon and Dick Giordano, edited by Julius Schwartz. The story began with a member of the Justice League I had never seen on the Super Friends program, named Green Lantern, facing off against an apparent longtime enemy, the Tattooed Man, making a comment that the villain was wearing a different costume than he had previously. But my unfamiliarity with these characters did not matter, because in four panels I already had a clear idea of the amazing power ring and what it could do. I also saw how the Tattooed Man was also a worthy adversary for Green Lantern, as he could make his tattoos become actual weapons to battle the Emerald Crusader. In this instance, a flaming pinwheel. Green Lantern's ring created a rotating countermeasure in the form of a high-speed fan that extinguished the flames, while at the same time created a fist to clock the carnival-clad crook. He then opened the fist of the power-ringed hand to pick up the stunned tattooed man, and was surprised to see the villain vanish in thin air. Green Lantern then used his ring to sweep the area to see if there was any trail to follow. Was there anything this ring could not do? Unfortunately, the ring found nothing, and so he flew off for a scheduled Justice League meeting in... a satellite? After rereading the panels to marvel again at the Green Lantern's power ring, I turned the page to discover where the Tattooed Man had gone, which was a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth. He was invited by a mysterious man in the shadows to have a seat at a meeting table half surrounded by five other costume criminals that I had never seen, but were identified by both the cover and by placards on the table as Kronos, Scarecrow, Poison Ivy, Shadow Thief, and Mirror Master. And behind them all hung a sign that identified this evil alliance as the Injustice Gang of the World, with the image of the planet Earth nearly cracked in half to show that they mean business. On the next panel, the mystery man holding the proceedings had taken his seat and revealed himself as Libra, the organizer of the Injustice Gang of the World. One look at this man and I already knew he was all about balance, especially as he slammed a handheld set of archaic balance scales on the table before him. In the following page, he promised the assembled villains a world that would kneel at their feet, explaining that he could equip them to be a match for the Justice League that had defeated each of them in the past. He did this by offering them the same sense of organization as the Justice League had, as well as a similar satellite headquarters positioned on the opposite side of the Earth, and a special device that, when activated, would tip the scales of battle with the Leaguers to the gang members' favor. Reading this story now at age 54, I am a bit surprised by how quickly these shady characters, with no sense of trust or morality, are quickly willing to follow a complete stranger on just the promise of this mysterious belt buckle device without explaining what exactly it would do to help them beat the League. But the ten-year-old flipping through these four-color pages in the back seat of a Dallas-bound station wagon was in on the deal along with the tattooed man, 
as Libra started to give the Injustice Gang their mission assignments. And I couldn't wait to see what this bizarre cast of characters could do against this group of super friends. Then, on the following single page, I was introduced to the amazing Justice League satellite headquarters, which seemed to be much more cool to me than the already impressive Hall of Justice on the television. On the same page, Green Lantern met with super friends Superman, Batman, Aquaman, and Flash, as well as another superhero member called the Elongated Man, who I admit at the time I thought was the same character as the Plastic Man hero who had appeared briefly to pull a mouse out of a computer in one Super Friends episode. I would soon discover I had much to learn. The heroes were all relating stories of how other villains disappeared during their fights just as the Tattooed Man had, when they received a trouble alert notice that the villains were causing havoc at three locations around the world. The elongated man then made a suggestion that sounded like one pulled from the Super Friends show, that instead of facing their respective foes, they draw the villains' names out of a hat just to mix things up a little. Super Friends Batman would have smiled and thought the idea would be fun, but Justice League Batman angrily declared that the idea was illogical and unprofessional. Even with Aquaman agreeing that if they were all truly heroes it would not matter with whom they fight, Batman's response of reluctant agreement with, you'll have to find your own hat, told me that the Justice League of the comics had much more depth and nuance, and was thus much better than the Super Friends program that I had enjoyed. In addition to my first discovery of the Justice League comic book and its superiority to the Super Friends, I also discovered on that March day of 1974 that I was incapable of reading in a moving vehicle for it was at this point of the story that I started to have one of those blinding, nauseating headaches, so I had to put the comic book down and try to sleep off the headache for the rest of the drive. And this seems like a good point to take a short break and play a podcast promo and... Wait, why did the narrator put this on the show agenda? Ayah! I better take care of this now, so I will be back by the time the break is finished. Excuse me, please. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him! He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. 
Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com. Take the Earth's mightiest heroes, each an invincible champion of justice, and band them together to assemble the legendary Justice League of America. For 261 issues and three annuals, the DC Universe was defended from threats on Earth and beyond by this legendary team, operating from a cave in Happy Harbor to a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth to uh, Detroit. Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, will follow the League through all their evolutions. Please join your host, Mike Peacock, as I seek to cover all of the issues of the classic pre-crisis Justice League of America series. Through the magic of the JLA transporter, each issue will be randomized, with special episodes covering a complete story arc if needed. Along with the issue coverage, we shall also look at what the then-current members of the Justice League were up to in solo appearances in other comics for the JLA cover month issue. So do not hesitate to activate your JLA signal device for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com or by subscribing through iTunes. In 2011, the irredeemable Shag and Aqua Rob Kelly teamed up to create the Fire and Water podcast. In 2016, they teamed up with Ryan Daly, the Franklins, and Siskoid to form the Fire and Water Podcast Network. A network built on teaming up needs a show about team ups. Marvel team up. Yes. The brave and the bold. You know it. Marvel two in one. It's clobbering time. DC Comics presents... Of course. Supervillain team-up? Good idea. Youngblood X-Force? Mmm, technically. FW Team-Up, coming this summer, only from the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Deep within the basement of a single-story suburban home in the outskirts of Daly City, California, the unabashedly conceited Professor Zoom took pity on classic DC comic book characters who found themselves out of work in the aftermath of one reality-altering crisis after another. So he gave them all jobs. In the done-in-one-wonders electronic mailroom. 
Hey there, Professor. I reckon you're ready for your first email message to respond to. That is what I do not understand, Mr. Manning. This is our very first podcast, so how can we have... Well, shucks, Professor. You know that with all this here interstellar technology at my disposal, I can pretty much make anything happen. Though I'd rather use it to have another go with that red-caped varmint, but he doesn't seem to be around these here parts no more. Well, I appreciate that, Mr. Manning. However, I... Mr. Manning. Shoot, I said before, y'all don't have to be that formal with me. Call me Terror Man. Of course. Terror Man. But I do not... Shush now, I'm reading. I have a message from Mr. John Wesley Shipp. Wait, John Wesley Shipp? The actor who portrayed The Flash in the early 1990s? And he writes, John Wesley Shipp. A Circle John Wesley Ship. <laughs> this here actor must be a real vain pot to be repeating his name so darn much. Favorited one of your tweets. Uh, what's a tweet? A tweet is a short electronic message people make on a website called Twitter. Are you actually- Don't you mean tweeter? No, no, Twitter. Well, if you're making tweets at this here website, shouldn't it be called Tweeter? Well, I... Or maybe your short electronic messages should just be called twits. I didn't name the... No, obviously some twit did. Confusing as all get out. Let's move on. What exactly are you reading from? Is that from my... Salmon Grundy, read the next one. Wait, but how can there be any one? We haven't... Salmon Grundy reads message from Dr. Maxman. Dr. Maxman say, be shagadelic Casanova. Meds for men, Viagra, soft tabs, 80% off. Hold on, Grundy. Mr. Manning, excuse me, Terra Man, are you going through my personal email account? Why, sure. You really didn't expect to get any emails for this here wonder show when we are recording the first one right now. I thought you professors were smarter than that. That's why I came right down here when I read the show notes of the narrator announcing the email room segment. I did not expect to do this until the next episode. Well, we didn't want to wait around down here for a whole month for that. So I got that there lame computer to hack into your available email for practice. But that is my private email. Must be real private if you need that Viagra. I heard what that stuff is for. That's actually supposed to be spam. I Wait, where is my spam folder? Solomon Grundy don't like things complicated. So Solomon Grundy asked Lamo Computer to move all email into one folder. Wait, you did what? Wait, my drafts and sent mail folders are gone too? Aya. But I am not Aya. I am Lenos, the linguistic audio manager of email operations. Lenos, this is my private email account. You are supposed to be monitoring for public responses on the Fire and Water Network site that I accessing. Well, save your processors, Lanos. We haven't received any. Located 1,032 responses addressed to Zoom Yukonori categorized as public. Lanos, how many are related to this show on the Fire and Water Network site? I'll tell you, it's zero. Calculating. Lanos, we already know that it's zero. Calculating. Please listen to me, Lanos. It is zero. Calculating. Ayah. Calculating. Zero. Yes, zero. 
Okay then, so let's skip the email room segment this go round and just get back to the. Speaking of entity Aya, I have retrieved 93 private messages in your omelet au fromage blog and Facebook accounts regarding a comment made on. Oh no, not this again. Io9.com article titled "Cancelled Superhero Cartoons on Days of Future Past" cover makes us sad. Dated May 17, 2014. Entity Lady Rose on May 18, 2014, at 11:57 a.m. Coordinated Universal Time, stated, "Admittedly, Zoom's constant focus on Aya, including a few the line it is drawn pics that had nothing to do with Green Lantern but had Aya in them, usually in some sexy pose for whatever reason, is why I'm hesitant to start watching GLTAS and why I'm not a huge fan of his artwork." This comment corresponds with 93 private messages in your omelet au fromage blog and Facebook account asking for the location of where to download said pics of Entity Aya in sexy poses. You sly dog! I had no idea you drew girly pictures. But Terman, I do not put me down as response 94, thar lamo. Solomon Grundy calls for response 95. 96. What? I greatly admire how Entity Aya is put together. Hebu hebu. Okay. For one, I do not know what Lady Rose is talking about. I only created one line. It is drawn submission featuring Aya in what I suppose would qualify as a quote sexy pose. That was in week 137, and the piece was associated with the Green Lantern series. And there was an explicit reason for incoming transmission emanating from Sector 1417. Greetings, Professor Zoom. This is Aya from the Green Lantern. I have received several transmissions that you've been depicting me in poses that humans refer to as sexy. You'd better cease doing so, or Razor will burn all of your comic books. Thank you. Goodbye. I knew it. You did draw them, thar girly pictures. Unrelated observation: Your drawing of Artemis on IO9 does not depict the proper way to draw a drawn compound bow. Solomon Grundy wants to be drawn as a girly picture too. Searching all computer files for images classified as sexy. Stop hogging the screen, you overgrown swampweed. Searching. Solomon Grundy want first look after you. Searching. Hey, yeah.、Uh, now then, all you listeners at home and in your cars and on your jogs, please let us not go through that again, and send us some actual relevant feedback to this show. You have a few options. You can post a comment on this show at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You may also send an email to wondersdone. Now that is one word: wondersdone at gmail.com. Or you can call and leave a voice message up to two minutes in length at area code four one five seven seven nine four six six eight. Voice messages we respond to will be played on the podcast, though they may be edited for time. And please feel free to suggest your favorite Dun and One Wonder comic book story for us to cover in a future episode. Welcome back to the Dun and One Wonders podcast wonder show and my review of the main story in Justice League of America, Volume One, Number One Hundred and Eleven, 
Balance of Power, which I was eagerly reading on my way to meet my uncle in Dallas, but reluctantly had to pause because I started to get carsick. Of course, by now you have a pretty good idea of the type of celebrity co-hosts you will hear in upcoming episodes, but for now, on this initial episode, I am doing this review solo, and I will explain how... But you are not alone, Professor. I am here. Uh, excuse me? Maybe the building is settling. I could have sworn that I heard a voice talking, but I do not see... Of course you do not see me. This is an audio medium. Now I know I'm not hearing things. But even though the listeners cannot see you, I should be able to see you here in the recording studio, unless... Oh, I see. It appears that one of my upcoming episode guests is using his interstellar technology to horn in on my opening solo show because he cannot wait until next month to start co-hosting. Is that you, Mr. Manning? I mean, Terra Man? No, Professor. I am your conscience. Yes, that's right. Here to guide you throughout the rest of the show to where I, I mean you, need to go. Okay, I'll play along to, I mean, my conscience. Or do you prefer Jiminy Cricket? Very droll, Professor. You are about to tell the listeners more of this Justice League story, as well as how this single comic had pretty much influenced how you would spend most of the leisure time in your life. That was quite omniscient of you to say, sir. I would indeed say that is so. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Let us go back to my nauseating car ride in the 1974 Texas highways, or rather, a short nap later, after which I started to feel better, just as my parents and I arrived at my Uncle Kenzo's house. After a quick, not-too-impressive introduction and a little time getting ourselves settled in the guest room, the four of us were eventually all sitting and talking in the living room. Well, to be more specific, my uncle and my parents were engaged in a lot of boring, grown-up discussions, So I unrolled the Justice League comic that I was still carrying with me and decided to continue the story. I should note at this point that we are currently at the end of page 5, with page 1 a brilliant symbolic splash page featuring the heroes and villains as chess pieces on a board to set up their upcoming confrontation. So with just four pages of story, I was introduced to Green Lantern and Tattooed Man in a heated battle with thoughts and tattoos coming to life, as it were and then a set of enemies teaming up to form a villainous group of their own to battle the Justice League, led by a mysterious leader called Libra who had a secret method of taking down our heroes. The Justice League was alerted to members of Libra's Injustice Gang making mischief on three different continents, so they came up with an unusual method to determine which team of heroes would face which villains. Now on to page 6, and the island country of Singapore, where the Poison Ivy and Mirror Master were causing all sorts of chaos. Poison Ivy was using a device co-designed by Kronos to accelerate the growth of the jungle plants to ensnare the city buildings, while the Mirror Master had placed a giant solar mirror in the Singapore Strait, which was reflecting the sun's rays into a heat beam that was boiling the waters of the trading ports. Immediately arriving on the scene was Green Lantern, whose amazing power ring had created a flying surfboard to ferry his fellow superfriend, uh, er, Justice Leaguer, Aquaman. The heroes did not understand what the ultimate goal of the villain's actions was, and I also found out on the next few panels that the two villains, who were just following Libra's orders, were not quite clear about their ultimate objective either, with Mirror Master pondering if Libra had a hidden agenda. 
Green Lantern sent the surfboarding Aquaman to battle the evildoer duo while he set out to destroy the giant mirror. And as I eagerly turned the page, I found out for the first time that the amazing power ring had its limits, as a destructive power ring blast bounced off the mirror and just missed striking down the Emerald Gladiator. The Lantern realized that Mirror Master had backed his mirror with gold instead of silver, and the Lantern Ring was powerless against anything yellow. And before I could ask why, a helpful editor's note told me that this was due to a necessary impurity in the ring's makeup. However, before I reached the end of the page, Green Lantern had come up with a plan to condense the steam from the boiling waters and enlarge the soot particles in the air to create black rain to coat the golden surface of the mirror, which then enabled his ring to lift the mirror out of the strait and send it into orbit around the sun. The following page showed what Aquaman and the villains had been doing in the meantime. As she saw him approach, Poison Ivy immediately used her device to ensnare the Sea King in the same giant creeper vines that she had been using to crush the buildings, with the intent to crush Aquaman in the same way. However, Aquaman reminded her of something that I had never known from my watching him on the Super Friends program, that his muscles were capable of withstanding the pressures of the ocean depths, which thus made them super strong when he is on land. So he flexed his arms and snapped the vine pretty much as easily as Superman would. He then hurled a piece of the broken vine at Ivy's device and smashed it to pieces. Mirror Master pulls out a laser mirror, gloating that it would destroy Aquaman in a second, but in no time at all Green Lantern arrived and melted the mirror with the power ring. The villains realized they would have to use Libra's belt buckle device, which they each wore under their costumes. Finally, I would find out what this gadget would do, as the last panel on page 8 shows the two heroes become engulfed in painful dark energy blast. I quickly turned the page to see what happened next. Essentially, Aquaman's strength had suddenly become drained, and he could no longer breathe out of water. Green Lantern also feels weakened, and his ring seemed to be low on power, as a ring blast stopped just short of reaching the villains. Aquaman then passed out from lack of oxygen as the villains moved in on the weakened heroes. Green Lantern let the villains get close enough so that they would be in range of his not-as-powerful power ring and managed to blast them unconscious. He made a quick comment about how it was not like a gentleman for him to knock out Poison Ivy as he turned toward Aquaman, but before the Lantern could attempt to get the Sea King to water, he is struck in the back by a green energy blast which I saw in the final panel came from the handheld scales of Libra, who stood over the fallen heroes and villains. Libra then asked rhetorically the unconscious Green Lantern how it felt to be on the receiving end of his own powers. I liked, and still like, how the blurb on the final panel spoke to me directly. Did he say what we think he said, dear reader? Then it seems the Mirror Master spoke true. The man called Libra does have something up his gold glove sleeve. Indeed. Indeed. Looks like your audio feed is improving, Mr. Conscience. Indeed. As I surmised, for some inexplicable reason, the mere discussion of this comic book is making me more coherent. All I need to do is keep this fool talking and I will... Excuse me? Uh, uh nothing. Nothing. Uh, by all means, let's continue. Oh, I will in a moment. First, I wanted to point out that this Singaporean sequence had taken place within the span of four pages and this next sequence will only take three. Turning to page 11, I saw Superman descend over downtown Hollywood, 
that was under attack by what appeared to be smaller-scale versions of Godzilla and King Kong. Well, they were still fairly large, but not as large as a 10-story building. Meanwhile, an expository blurb explained that these creatures were indeed supposed to be these famous Hollywood monsters, while also making an observation about how inflation led to the decline of movie production in this dream capital of the world in the early 1970s, though I believe there were other factors involved. Superman also had a thought that the Scarecrow, the Master of Fear, was obviously behind this mayhem causing panic in the Hollywood crowd. Like a scene out of the Super Friends, Superman grabbed the Godzilla monster by the tail and swung the beast into King Kong, making comments to himself that the two creatures were actually solid and not mere illusions, and that him fighting the beast was reducing the crowd's panic. And then, suddenly, the beast mysteriously vanished. On the next page, Superman spied the Scarecrow cackling maniacally on a nearby rooftop, but as the Man of Steel flew up to capture him, he was snagged out of the air by a scalloped octopus tentacle. Superman was startled to see that he had been captured by a Kryptonian octosaur, which was a creature that looked like a scaled gray dinosaur with webbed feet and an octopus-like head with the eight tendrils emerging from its face. Superman recalled that his father told him the octosaur was the most deadliest of beasts on the jungles of Krypton and here on Earth it would be a super-octosaur, powerful enough to kill the Metropolis Marvel, and that thought filled his mind with overwhelming fear. The Scarecrow then gloated by sarcastically saying how surprised he was to see Superman become so frightened, for surely he had been in a tight squeeze like this before. That was a mistake, for it made Superman realize that the Scarecrow was somehow making him afraid, and that it was his fear that was making the monster solid and strong. So as Superman started to overcome his fear, the Octosaur vanished, just as Godzilla and King Kong had done on the previous page when the crowd's fear was alleviated by Superman's arrival. Another page turn found the Scarecrow truly surprised, commenting that the Mirror Master helped him power his fear device with the rays of a distant red sun so it would affect Superman. And here I made a mental note that Superman was vulnerable to more than just kryptonite. In the same first panel, Superman charges at Scarecrow, who pressed a secret belt buckle device that engulfed the Man of Steel in that painful dark energy blast in the next panel. Superman weakly landed before the Scarecrow, proclaiming astonishment that he felt like, quote, he had the wind knocked out of him, while the Scarecrow stood triumphant and ready to take on Superman. But before the Master of Fear had a chance to do so, Superman fired a blast of super breath that ricocheted off the ground and blasted the Scarecrow back a few feet, knocking him out. A gold-gloved hand then set on Superman's shoulder while a mysterious voice congratulated him on his victory. Superman turned toward the voice and was punched in the face by Libra with a blow powerful enough to knock the Kryptonian out. One punch. One punch. <laughs> Excuse me? Uh, 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 I mean, I particularly like the panel in which Libra punches Superman. It is very dynamic, yet very grounded in realism and not overtly bombastic. Yes, exactly what I was going to say. It looks like a punch that you would see in a boxing match. It was very simple and very real. I also especially liked how much action happened on page 11. 
Superman noticing the Scarecrow, getting snared by the Octosaur, and breaking free of it in his induced fear, it all happened on one page, but it doesn't feel rushed or shortcut, for lack of a better word. And I credit that not only to the crisp details in the writing, but also the illustrative prowess of Dick Dillon. He managed to capture the immense scale and scope of the Octosaur menace using just a little more than one-sixth of a comic book page. It was simply brilliant. But back to the last panel of page 12, and my shock at seeing Libra standing over an unconscious Superman. This was the first supervillain I had ever seen punch out Superman in a comic, so this was a really big deal. And as Libra monologued about one more test being successful that will make him master of the universe, my ten-year-old self truly believed him. Indeed, nothing will stand in his way. Uh, that is, if he could knock out Superman, who could possibly stop him? Right. Let's move on to the next chapter of this story on page 13. Again, I have to compliment Dick Dillon on how he was able to set up the next few pages with a clever use of panel layout. First, there was a wide establishing shot of London and the Palace of Westminster to set the locale, and then three equal-sized narrow panels that present a single hero moving from the foreground toward a showdown with a single villain from the Injustice Gang in the background. The first of these panels involved the time-themed thief Kronos, who had tampered with Big Ben so the clock was continually chiming at a deafening volume. Batman used his bat rope to swing toward Kronos, who stood atop one of the Elizabeth Tower spires, firing the minute hands from his gimmicked watch at the caped crusader. These minute hands were actually expanding to the size of deadly javelins. In the next panel, the elongated man snaked his way through a crowd at Piccadilly Circus, a crowd of people that were panicked by their skin suddenly developing strange blue blemishes that matched the color of the ink markings on the elongated man's quarry, the Tattooed Man. And in the final panel, the Shadow Thief loomed large in his shadow form over a crowd touring the Tower of London, a crowd of panicked sightseers whose shadows are somehow taking a life of their own and attacking them. Speeding onto the scene to stop this dark menace is the Flash, the fastest man alive. I should also note that these panels had cleverly employed the official DC Comics logos of the heroes to introduce them to the reader, and I neglected to mention that the previous villain face-off sequences had done the same for Aquaman and Green Lantern, and then Superman. It added an additional layer of epic scope to the story, I felt. But on to the next page, which encapsulated the entire showdown between Batman and Kronos. While Big Ben continued its deafening din, Batman shifted his weight on his rope swing to deftly avoid the deadly tips of the clock hand javelins hurling toward him. He also managed to grab one of the clock hands and use it to pin Cronus's cape to the wall behind him. As Batman landed before Cronus on the parapet, Cronus utters a threat as he uses his sandstorm hourglass to smother the Dark Knight detective in a mini sandstorm. Kronos also chastised himself out loud about how Batman would be unable to hear his gloating over the bonging of Big Ben. Batman covered his face with his cape and moved through the swirling sand toward his foe. Kronos then verbally continued to utter his amazement that Batman, unable to hear, see, or breathe, was somehow able to move directly toward him until he was knocked unconscious with a sock to the jaw. 
Batman then told the unconscious Kronos that he used special earplugs from his utility belt that were set to tune out the sound of the chimes, but he could hear everything else, and thus he was able to follow Kronos' voice to follow him through the mini sandstorm. And to reiterate, all of that action took place in the span of a single comic book page. Now back when I was 10, I thought it was weird for Batman to be talking to a villain after he was knocked out, but at age 54, I realized that Batman's expository dialogue was really for the reader's benefit. The next page highlighted the elongated man's battle with the tattooed man, with panel 1 offering more expository dialogue of how the tattooed man's tattoos work. All the tattooed man had to do was touch one of his tattooed pictures on his skin and concentrate, and then he would materialize a real-life counterpart of the picture which he can control. And as a demonstration, the tattooed man materialized an ancient weighted gladiator net toward the elastic hero. The second panel showed the elongated man ensnared by the net, as the tattooed man launched a materialized trident at him. At the same time, the tattooed man admitted that he was indeed behind the bizarre skin rash that frightened the crowd, which he called a special form of decalcomania, or the transferring of his tattooed patterns onto the people. On panel 3, the elongated man made himself thin enough to slip through the weighted netting and stretched out of the way of the trident toward his adversary. And in panel 4, the stretchable sleuth grabbed the tattooed man's arms so he could not touch his tattoos, or Libra's special device, and used an elongated headbutt to knock the villain out. On the same page, the battle between the Flash and the Shadow Thief began as well. Flash ran right through the Shadow Thief as he charged his foe, which demonstrated to me that the Thief's shadow form made him as untouchable as a phantom. At the same time, we see the Thief fire a dark energy beam from his finger to the ground beneath the Flash. In the next and final panel of the page, I saw that the beam made the Flash's shadow come to life and attack the Scarlet Speedster, while the thief gloated that no matter how fast the Flash moved, he could not outrun his equally fast shadow. The next page had the Flash naturally find a quick solution to his problem, as he vibrated his body so fast that all light would pass through him, which meant that he would no longer cast his shadow, though I believe this action should have made the Flash completely invisible as well, and perhaps it did even though it appears on the page that the Shadow Thief could still see him. At any rate, the Shadow Thief managed to do what Kronos and the Tattooed Man could not, and activate Libra's dark energy device. I knew by now that this device would painfully drain some of the powers and abilities from the Justice Leaguers and give them to Libra, who immediately showed up using a combination of the Flash's speed and the Elongated Man's long reach to punch out the three heroes in an instant. As Libra skidded to a halt, the Shadow Thief thanked the Injustice Gang leader for his help and deactivated his shadow device so he would become human once again. Libra then immediately, and surprisingly, punched the Shadow Thief into unconsciousness as well, declaring that the tests were complete and that nothing would stand in his way. An hour later, back at the Injustice Gang's satellite headquarters, Libra had taken the six defeated and partly depowered Justice Leaguers and imprisoned them in test-tube-like prisons suspended from the ceiling. Libra gloated that the tubes are more than sufficient to hold their captives at their current power levels, especially since we see that Green Lantern's tube contained a yellow mist to negate his power ring, and Superman's tube had a red light which would later be confirmed to be a red sunlight projector. 
Aquaman's tube was also filled with water since he could no longer breathe directly from the air. Libra then explained how he had managed to steal half of the powers and abilities of the Justice Leaguers with a device he called the Energy Transmortifier, which, as he put it, created a balance by stealing one half of any universal energy form. And we discover in the final panel of this page that that also included half of Batman's razor-sharp intellect. And the Dark Knight detective was struggling to find the words to ask Libra why he had organized the Injustice Gang in the first place. Libra graciously explained that he recruited the villains to lure the Leaguers into a position where he could steal their powers, essentially as a test for his energy transmortifier device. And with the test successful, he left the defeated villains to the authorities and imprisoned the Leaguers so they could bear witness to his ultimate plan, to use his device to transfer half of the energy of the entire Milky Way galaxy into his own body. Ah, oh, yes. yes. This is my, this is favorite, my favorite part of the tale. Your audio is almost dead solid now, Mr. Conscience. I was starting to wonder about the quality of that interstellar technology that you always like to brag about. My... Oh, uh, yes, indeed. Please continue. Very well. As Libra steps away to make the final adjustments on his machine, the Flash starts to whirl within his tight prison at super speed, mentioning that at full power he would have had the ability to vibrate his molecules out of the tube, which my ten-year-old self would have really liked to see. For now, Flash is trying to just heat the air in the tube to the point where it would build enough pressure to blow apart his prison, but he doesn't seem to have enough energy to do it. In the next tube, Superman figured out what Flash was attempting to do, and, though powerless by the Red Sun projector, managed to tilt that projector towards Flash's tube to add to the heat. On the top of the next page, Libra was ready to throw the switch and noticed that the Flash's tube was starting to expand toward the bursting point. Libra quickly activated his device, which bathed him in an energy transfer ray, just as the Flash's prison exploded, breaking the tubes of Superman and Green Lantern in the process. However, Libra declared that the Justice League's effort was too late. Libra started to grow larger with the increase in energy, which he uses to somehow paralyze the freed heroes so that all they could do was watch Libra grow ever larger and become pure energy, slipping out of the satellite and expanding farther and farther into outer space, all the while bragging about how his still increasing power was expanding his perceptions, and that he could now see and hear things that no human mind could conceive. On the next page, he continued to brag about his increase in knowledge, and his mind was pouring with brilliant ideas that he wanted to put into action. And that was when he realized that he could not control all of that knowledge or that power, which was pulling at him in a trillion different directions. In a rather gruesome panel, we actually see Libra's etherical face literally pulling apart while he screamed defiantly and in vain, as his body completely disintegrated and his mind scattered across the galaxy. And with Libra gone, so too was the energy that had held the unencapsulated leaguers immobile. And essentially, the story would end there, as all that was left was to free the other leaguers. Essentially a one and done, except for one dangling plot thread that was proclaimed in the final two panels. Green Lantern pointed out that while Libra was gone, he had taken half of the Leaguer's powers with him, and that there was no way they could get them back. And back at my Uncle Kenzo's 1974 living room, my awestruck ten-year-old self lowered the comic book to my lap after I had finished the story, and my Uncle Kenzo immediately asked me if I enjoyed the book. 
I felt like I had been caught reading a comic in class. I wondered whether I was being rude for reading the comic book instead of taking part in the family conversation. But then my uncle smiled and said, Superman and the others still lost half of their powers. I wonder how they will get them back. And I was stunned. How did Uncle Kenzo know? I was sitting in a chair opposite him, so there was no way he could have read over my shoulder. And that was when I realized that he must have read this story himself. My uncle then asked how long I had been reading comic books, and I told him that this was actually my first one. Then my uncle's eyes flickered a little when he stood up and said, Come, let me show you something. And he led me and my parents to a room in the back of his house. There was a small writing desk in one corner that had a few comic books atop it, including the same issue of Justice League of America that I was holding, but it was in a much better condition. And along the wall were shelves with numerous office file boxes. He pulled one off the shelf and opened it. I want to show you the first Justice League comic I have ever owned, he said. And from one of the box's hanging file folders, he produced a worn yet complete copy of The Brave and the Bold number 29. You are welcome to read this if you are very careful with it, he said. But first, you should read this one. And then he pulled out an equally worn but still in one piece copy of The Brave and the Bold number 28. This was the second Justice League comic I have ever owned, he told me but it's the first Justice League comic book ever. And I was a terrible house guest that weekend because I spent most of my time in that back room. First, I was content going through that one box reading all of the early Justice League adventures because he had owned every issue up to that point. I had just finished the crime syndicate story in Justice League of America number 30 when my uncle pointed out that he had about six boxes of comics that were completely disorganized and asked me if I could help him sort them out. I was very, very happy to do so. As I was going through his unfiled comics and sorting them in the organized boxes in his collection, I essentially discovered the Silver Age of DC Comics, plus a little glimpse of Marvel, for he had lengthy runs of the Avengers and the Amazing Spider-Man. I also discovered that Uncle Kenzo was the coolest uncle in the whole world. In addition to Justice League, my uncle had complete runs of The Flash and the Green Lantern titles. He also owned lengthy consecutive runs of Batman, Superman, Black Hawk, and Action Comics. Going back to The Flash, I had taken an impromptu break to go through my Uncle Kenzo's copy of Showcase No. 4, being thrilled to read the story of how The Flash came to be, and not truly appreciating at the time that I was actually holding a piece of comic book history in my hands. I would actually take several such impromptu breaks when I came across a comic book cover that essentially told me to stop whatever I was doing and read this story now. As I continued to sort out my uncle's comics, I noticed that he had some duplicate copies of certain issues. I asked my uncle if he wanted me to keep the two duplicates together, and he told me to actually put the duplicate issue that was in a lesser shape in a separate box. Now I should point out that none of Uncle Kenzo's comics were bagged or boarded. In fact, I am not sure if the comic bags we know today had been invented back in 1974. I believe it was mostly the libraries and museums that had mylar sleeves to protect old documents. So most of my uncle's older comics were very tattered. Many of them had pages that were yellowed with age. Some were actually golden brown and a bit brittle. There was a Brave and the Bold issue featuring the Flash and the Martian Manhunter that was crumbling along the edges. But they all had that old book smell like fresh-cut cedar laced with vanilla. I loved it. 
Now, my uncle kept 10 consecutive comics in a hanging file folder, and then 20 folders in a box. They were all in alphabetical order for the most part, but he would keep the Flash issues of Showcase with the Flash, and the Showcase issues of Green Lantern with Green Lantern. And of course, the Brave and the Bold issues 28 through 30 was placed before Justice League number 1. Those were the exceptions. By Sunday afternoon, I had sorted the six boxes into the rest of my uncle's collection and came across over a hundred duplicate comic books in the process, which I filed in alphabetical order in the separate box as I was instructed. My uncle fingered through the duplicates and pulled out a copy of The Brave and the Bold number 29, which was a little more beaten than the copy my uncle had handed me to read a few days before. It also had a hole in the bottom left corner of the cover, because the childhood friend who had given this to him had cut out the coupon on the other side to redeem for a real mobile general patent tank from the Honor House Products Corporation at the cost of just $4.98 plus 63 cents shipping charge. My uncle had immediately taken that damaged copy back to his regular collection and brought back his other copy that had the cover intact, the first Justice League comic book he had ever owned and he put it in the duplicate box. Then he handed the box to me as a thank you for sorting out his messy collection and to essentially start me on my way to becoming the avid comic book fan that I am today. I still own that comic book today and I will post a photo of it on the Fire and Water podcast website. But let's go back to my first Justice League comic book. To summarize, this single 20-page story was packed with six action battles, including monsters and quite a number of remarkable weapons, seven different locales, including two equally impressive satellite headquarters, six superheroes, two of whom were brand new to me, and of course an introduction to seven supervillains, who were not the typical small-time crooks and misguided scientists from the Super Friends program. And Mr. Zween and Dylan created just the right balance of illustration and exposition for a 10-year-old first-time reader to quickly grasp who all of these new characters were as I moved through this robust story plot. I should also add that following the story was a special two-page spread entitled Wanted the Injustice Gang, written by Martin Pascoe and illustrated by Pat Broderick. This comprised of a series of wanted posters to further inform me of the backstory of all of the Injustice Gang members, except for Libra. The posters featured individual pictures of the villains without their masks, and explained each villain's secret identity, abilities, and first-issue appearance. I suppose I had one minor quibble with the main story of this issue. I was a bit disappointed that the Justice League did not really score a victory in this one. While they may have defeated the three schemes of the small villain teams, they were all subdued by Libra's device, and Libra essentially defeated himself. The only victory the League can claim against Libra is succeeding in breaking out of their prison through teamwork. And of course, the heroes do find a way to restore their stolen powers in the following issue. Their plan involved the Amazo Android, who first stole the Justice League's powers back in The Brave and the Bold, Volume 1, Issue 30. That is all very fascinating, I'm sure. However... Excuse me, Terra... Uh, ah, Mr. Conscience. Uh, but your audio feed is cutting out again. Drat. The cripple's cretin is correct. I am losing cohesion again. But he was still talking about the comic book that... Oh, of course. 
Uh, Professor, I am sure the listeners would like to know more about Libra, his real name and background, where he had the time and resources to build his energy transmortifier and the orbiting satellite and all of that. Oh, sure. Though my understanding is that this information was all revealed post-crisis, but it was in a story written by Lynn Wein. Lenos. Greetings and salutations. I am Lenos, the librarian of archived media and electronic oddities. How can I serve you today? That acronymic phrase does not spell... Lenos, please pull up my comicsology file of Final Crisis Secret Files number one. Accessing. Ah, very good, thank you. Yes, here we go. His real name was Justin Ballantyne. Both of his parents actually died due to alcohol abuse. His ill mother died due to mismeasured medicine from a drunkard pharmacist. And his bitter, abusive father also died when he fell off a roof in a drunken stupor. This led to Ballantyne having an obsession with balance that equaled his already established obsession with stars. Ballantyne later studied at Opal University in a class taught by Professor Ted Knight, and he somehow knew of Knight's other identity as the Golden Age Starman. Ballantyne eventually broke into Knight's private office and photographed all of Knight's research and designs behind Starman's cosmic rod, which enabled him to develop the energy transmortifier. From there, a mysterious benefactor provided Ballantyne with a laboratory satellite, as well as the idea to form an Injustice gang of villains to test the energy transmortifier on the Justice League. This benefactor would be revealed as glorious Godfrey of the New Gods, who set Libra up for a role in a grand scheme of dark sides that would play out in Grant Morrison's Final Crisis series. But again, this was the post-crisis version of Libra, and while Darkseid and Glorious Godfrey were established in the DC Comics of 1974, the pre-crisis Earth-1 Libra in Justice League of America Volume 1, Issue 111 could not have based his device on Starman's Cosmic Rod, since Starman only existed on the parallel world of Earth-2 at that time. So for all intents and purposes, the Libra from this Justice League story was still scattered across the Milky Way galaxy of the Earth-1 universe. That is where you are wrong, you hapless fool. I... Oh, and Lanos, it was very kind of you to project a full-scale, three-dimensional hologram of Libra in his costume, but our listeners will not be able to see that... But I did, I did not, not project, project such a hologram. Lamo is right, you pitiful excuse for a professor, for I am not your conscience. I am Libra. Ah, sure you are, whatever you say. When the Justice League managed to retrieve their stolen powers with the Amazo Android, the process resulted in an energy leak upon my scattered essence. Eventually, I have shed enough excess power for my mind to regain some semblance of cohesion. But I was still incorporeal, and still drifting through the galactic void, alone, tormented, lost, until I heard something calling me like a song of a distant siren. That something was your podcast, Professor. It somehow drew me back to Earth, and your telling my story somehow enabled me to coalesce my physical body. Uh-huh. Well, never underestimate the power of podcasting. All I had to do was keep you talking about myself so I could regain enough of my corporeal form to do this.
Warning, Entity Libra is draining all of the power from this podcast production. Correction, Lamo. I can only absorb 50%, but that will be enough to fully restore my physical form. And once I do, I will destroy all of you, and then proceed with my original plan to take over the world. Warning, power levels are at 72% and falling. And when those levels reach 50%, Libra here will destroy us, is that right? Affirmative. I've got to hand it to you, Lanos. You and Terraman sure know how to put on a show. In a few seconds, your podcast wonder show will truly be a one and done. <laughs> okay, now that is a bit too melodramatic, and I think we're infringing on another podcast. Power levels at 58%. Sure they are. 55%. Oh, very well. I will play along. Lanos, remember when the Construct tried to crash our rehearsal last week? Affirmative. And then we bombarded him with a trillion continuous random frequency wave patterns until he became incoherent? Affirmative. The same treatment should rescatter Libra's essence across the galaxy and prevent him from coalescing again. So do it. Commencing one trillion continuous random frequency wave patterns. Oh, let's make it two trillion. Maybe three, why not? Acknowledged. What? No! I am truth! I am knowledge! I am power! Power levels at 50%. Power levels returning to normal parameters. Lanos, you do realize this is a podcast, and the listeners could not see any of this? Hey, Professor. I came a-running as soon as the Hellevator started working again. We'd been infiltrated by a- By Libra, right? I know, Terraman. Just as I know who is really behind all this. Uh, what are you talking about, Professor? You know, if you wanted to co-host the first episode of the podcast so badly, you could have simply asked me. I don't understand. I was just about- I have to admit, you and Lanos have really outdone yourselves. But next time, let's focus on providing an audio performance and save the expensive pyrotechnics for when we establish a YouTube channel, shall we? Until next month, gentlemen. Now what in tarnation was that all about? Did he think this was my fault? All podcast and computer functions are now operating at normal parameters, except error, data gap detected. What? Let me see. Oh no, you don't mean... Affirmative. Libra may be gone, but he has taken 50% of Zoom Yukonori's email with him. And there ain't no way for us to get them back. The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is an unabashedly conceited member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, via email at wondersdone at gmail.com, or by voicemail at area code 415-779-4668. The views expressed on Done in One Wonders belong solely to the host and his cast of characters, who are not affiliated in any way with any professional comic book publisher or entertainment company. 
All copyright and trademarks of comic book characters and related concepts, as well as music, audio clips, and quoted text, are held by their respective owners. These are used for entertainment purposes only, and are believed to be covered under fair use. No money is made from this podcast, and no copyright infringement is intended. Celebrity voices are impersonated, with the exception of Gray Griffin, who receives special thanks for providing the voice of Aya. The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is a Professor Zoom Productions production. Razor, I very much enjoy your posterior. You appear to have what many humans refer to as junk in your trunk. I like big butts, and I cannot lie.